Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. Take your Bibles, please. We're concluding our study in the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, verse 18 is where we'll go and conclude our study in this marvelous uh, doctrinal and practical book. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. It's good to have my mother-in-law here, so I will be on my best behavior for about a week or so. Uh, you pray for her, right? And then we're glad that she's here, and it's good to have an occasional visit from her and thankful for I'm glad she years ago said, yes, uh, I think you can marry my daughter. And so it's been the greatest blessing of my life. We're thankful for that family. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse number 18, praying always with all prayer. Notice, please, the amount of all used in this verse. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all Perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, Paul says, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, Paul writing this letter from jail. That therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I ask you a question. How bold would you be if you knew the person chained to you, a soldier, had the privilege to, or had the opportunity, the power to torture you or put you to death? Would you say anything about Christ? Paul says, would you pray for me? This is a specific prayer request. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds. That I might speak it boldly as I should or ought to speak. But thee also may know... My affairs and how I do, Titicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that you might know our affairs, that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Shall we pray together? Father, again, it's a blessing to have the Word of God written, every word, every place, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our profit and learning. Thank you for this great book. I pray that you would help us as we review and close it out today, that we would not forget its great truths, that we would be directed by them, that by your Word and by the power of the Spirit who's regenerated us, brought us to Christ, and now fills us with power for the warfare and battle that we uh, live in every day. I pray that you would see great things accomplished because of our submission to the Lord. Thank you again for everyone that's here. We do pray for the Fannins. Our hearts are touched, bittersweet today. We do miss the sweet presence of this dear saint of God, uh, Sherry. And Lord, I just pray that even now she celebrates this Sunday with you in glory that you would give our hearts a fondness for that city whose builder and maker is God. And Lord, we're so distracted and enamored by the things that are temporal and passing in this world. Give us a love for what is eternal. Thank you for blessing us with her presence these many years, <clears throat> longtime member. And I pray that as we regather in a just a couple, three hours that, Lord, you would give us the joy of knowing, absent 
from the body is present with the Lord. Thank you again for the testimony of this dear one. And I pray again that her memories would really be implanted deep in our soul, that we would aspire to be more like her and more like Christ in the days we have remaining. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul Maxwell, a former writer for Desiring God Ministries with a Ph.D. in theology, trauma, and fitness, recently announced that he is no longer a Christian. In fact, he announced on his Instagram feed, he said, I love you guys, speaking to his audience, I suppose, and I love the friendships I've built in the ministry of Desiring God, ministry, of course, of John Piper at the Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. And he says this, but I think it's important to say that I'm just not a Christian anymore. Wow. And he says this, he continues, it really feels good. I really am happy. I'm trying now to figure out what's next. I'm in a good spot or place, probably the best spot of my life. I'm so full of joy for the first time. I love my life. (laughs) He's announcing, in a sense, that he's no longer a believer. John 12, 25 says, he that loveth his life shall lose it. He's saying, I really love my life now without Christ. Wait a minute. I object, Your Honor. I object, Mr. Maxwell. There's some real theological issues with what he's just said to all of his friends. Eternal life or everlasting life cannot be tossed off like a windbreaker or a sweater. You can't have everlasting life for a little while. You can't be saved today and lost tomorrow. You can't unsave yourself. When you are in Christ, you can't jump out of Christ. Just seeing if you're out there. Paul Maxwell can't unsave himself and say, I'm not a Christian anymore if he truly was one in the first place. Secondly, his feelings. He says, I feel great now that I've made that declaration. His love for life, his joy, sadly will, will be short-lived. The Bible tells us that, Psalm 917. It says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. You might feel great about a decision you've made to run from God, but one day you will see that all those who do not believe in Christ will cast together in a place the Bible calls hell. Joshua Harris uh, joins him in his declaration of forgetting about God. This is the author of the book that says, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, who uh, had many followers who believed he was a believer, but he said later, I am not a Christian anymore. How do you do that? Former Hillsong writer Marty Simpson adds his voice to the many defections. He says, I'm losing my faith. He goes on to say, and it doesn't really bother me. This trend is called deconversion. I submit to you that these who claim to be deconverted have never been converted in the first place. Jude calls these who come to church and proclaim or at least profess faith ungodly, who never contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Rather, like those delivered from Egypt, they were simply along for the ride. They were destroyed in the desert, the Bible says, because they believe not. Jude goes on to describe these folks, these imposters, as clouds without water, carried by the winds, trees without fruit, twice dead, raging waves of the sea, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Friend, it is not by accident that Paul, as he closes the book of Ephesians, says, Be on your guard. 
Put on your fighting clothes. Dress yourselves in the armor of God. There are philosophies existent, and there's the pull of the world, and there's the pull of the flesh. So stand in the power of God. He starts this book as I would remind you as we close it up by way of review. He starts the book, of course, with this wonderful mountaintop experience, chapter 1 through 3, especially chapter 1 and verse 3. He says this, the grand catalog of God's benefits to us. Remember that? What a, and we'll spend a minute or two reminding ourselves of what's there in that grand, grand vista of redemptive purpose. But then he kind of ends the book with this call to militant watchfulness. Chapter 6, we've already talked about these, these articles of clothing or armament that the soldier of Christ needs. Prepare yourself for testing, for immense testing, an immense pull, an immense uh, really wrestling match, hand-to-hand combat with the devil. Be ready. It's not a cakewalk we're in. God wants you to be successful. The devil wants to destroy you. So he says to us in conclusion of the book of Ephesians, put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel assurance. Back to this Mr. Maxwell. Who cares how you feel about things? The real question is, what has God done for us? Feelings come and feelings go. Feelings are deceiving. We trust the word of God. Not else is worth believing. So stand wrapped together with the belt of truth, guarded in your heart by the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the shoes of assurance. Know that you're saved. (laughs) Stand in these protective truths, unshakable truths, the shield of faith. Do you know, could you take the Bible and defend your faith. Could you? The helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Paul concludes the book by reminding all good soldiers to pray. This is not just like parsley on the spiritual plate. Oh yeah, by the way, pray. This is the preemptive strike. This is like every breath that comes from you is a gift from God, and every breath that returns ought to be a prayer to God. Please notice again, verse 18, praying always with all prayer. What does that mean? Praying always with all prayer. Look at that. There are four alls in that verse, right? Always praying, all prayer, all perseverance for all saints. Paul wants us to understand this isn't just an add-on. Oh, by the way, pray once in a while. Why don't you? No, he hearkens back to the Lord Jesus Christ who told his disciples, men ought always to pray and what? Not to faint. You are either praying or you are fainting today. You are either living in the spirit of prayer or you are successively failing as a believer. Now, before we define prayer, let's put ourselves in the proper frame of mind, this book, no other book. And I really have enjoyed the study of Ephesians. No other book is so explicit about what God has done for us in salvation, as is the book of Ephesians. Paul takes us, as I mentioned, uh, on, a, on a trip to the mountain in Ephesians chapter one, verses, or chapters 1 through 3. 
I'll never forget uh, coming back from furlough where we spent our early days. I did at least in the Amazon area. Not a lot of mountains there. And then when I came back, our, our area for furlough was uh, Kansas. Raise your hand if you've been to the beautiful state of Kansas. Uh, and you're admitting it. Uh, good for you. I grew up there. Uh, it was our base uh, for furlough. And if you've seen Kansas, you know there are flatlands uh, and silos, a few tumbleweeds. And I just recommend if you are going to cross Kansas east to west, well, don't do it. Uh, <laughs> But usually you'll get on I-70 and take that long trip through Kansas. Basically wheat fields, like as I mentioned, uh, and an occasional tumbleweed. And back in the day before handheld devices, we looked out the window. Remember that, if you remember that, when you looked, actually looked around, looked up once in a while? Well, my dad would say, there goes a tumbleweed, kids. And we go, woohoo, that's great. Is that the most excitement we get? He says, yeah, that's it. Two trees, they're in a museum in Kansas somewhere. <laughs> Cell phones have changed things. Now it's kids, put down your phones because there's a go there, go there goes the Grand Canyon. Oh, Dad, wait a minute. I'm, I'm on level five here. Just give it a break here, Dad. I'm fighting a super villain or I'm uh, surviving Mars. Well, back in the day, we looked out the windows and it was exciting to get through Kansas into Colorado. One Year, Dad said, we're going on a real vacation. We're leaving the county. <laughs> we're leaving the state. And we're going to Colorado. Well, the first time we saw that hazy ridge of mountains called the Rocky Mountains, we got excited. We'd been looking out the window for eight hours or more. And hadn't seen anything but tumbleweeds and silos and wheat fields. And there we saw it looming in the distance. Some of you have taken that trip out west. And we all said from the back seat, what is that, Dad? He said, those are mountains. And we said, Dad, why didn't you tell us about this sooner? He says, well, I didn't want to have you leave the reservation. We, you know, too much information. There is exciting stuff out there. And, he, and, and Dad says, I want you to see this. Uh, before we pass away, there are beautiful things in Colorado. We had to get out of Kansas to see it. So we finally got to the foothills and then ascended what seemed like forever to the heights. And we, the underprivileged kids from Kansas, got to actually on a clear day from one of those scenic turnouts at the top of the Rocky Mountain Ridge, look out and see the vista that went on for miles and miles. Somebody said you can see from there a hundred miles. I'm told that the largest or the longest sight line in the world is 320 miles or so. And from the first chapter of Ephesians, God gives us the longest sight line spiritually in the Bible. He takes us back to eternity past where He loved us before we loved Him and had a plan for our redemption in eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1. And then chapter 2, 7, he takes us to the place where we will be gathered, recollected again, those who are believers in glory. And he shows us off not only the wonders of his marvelous plan of redemption, whereby he knew that we would fall. He already provided his own son as the sinless sacrifice by his own blood for our 
redemption. He had already provided for that in eternity past. And he, he redeemed us, brought us to himself by the sacrifice of his son. And he's prepared to glorify us one day in heaven where he will show us, show us the glories, not only of his redemptive plan in retrospect, but of all the glories yet ahead of us in heaven. Leslie, brother, excuse me, Sherry is already getting a tour. Can you imagine what that must be like? And so Ephesians is this mountaintop experience. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then he turns the corner in chapter 4, as you remember, as he all of a sudden says, okay, because of this, because of the love of God that has planned for you was that you would be holy before him. That's his purpose for your life. And you ought to live a thank you life. He turns the corner and says, now, I want you to, chapters 4 through 6, walk in a way that's commensurate, that's worthy. Axiomatic is the Greek. Because of all that God has done for you in glory, his plan, provision, his power, and his presence, chapters 1 through 3, I want you to live a life that expresses a thank you by your practice. You don't get saved by works. But because you are saved, you ought to work and manifest how much you love God. We are not to live a life of guilt, but we are to serve Him by grace. Because I have been redeemed, because God had me in mind before I loved Him, because He provided a Savior and a penalty for my sin that I could not pay, now... I have a hope of glory. I've received this gift by faith, and it's by grace that I'm saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is all of God. And my response in faith brought me into a relationship with Him that's eternal, and I can't deconvert myself. Am I truly saved? I can't jump out of the Father's hand. No one can pluck me out of His hand. Amen. So I stand justified because of the finished work of Christ that covers, pays for, atones for my sin. And not only that, not only has he rescued me from a sure destination in hell, he's given me all the glories of what is yet to come. And so with trembling knees and grateful heart, we ought to be like that person pulled from the waves drowning by a lifeguard and we're pulled from the waves and we come to the shore and we just can't walk away from that lifeguard and say, thanks, I really deserve that. Glad you were in the area. No, we look at them and say, thank you for saving my life. I owe everything to you. And that's the point of Ephesians 4 through 6. Walk in love, walk worthy, walk in love, walk in light, walk circumspectly because of all that God has done for you. Amen. And then Paul, you could say, well, here's what God has done. This is what you must do because you love him. And then Paul doesn't let us go without bringing us to the reality that you are in a war. Just because you've saved doesn't mean you can drift whistling to heaven. You are surrounded by enemies culturally. There is this propensity within you to sin, the flesh. The devil hates you. Aren't you glad that Paul doesn't say, okay, now just whistle your way on in. God did all this for you. You're saved. You can't lose it. 
So enjoy your life. See you in heaven. No, he says, you have to understand the principalities and powers, Ephesians 6, are after you. They want to destroy you. They would like to see you move away, to defect, to, to, to run away from God. No, we can't lose our salvation, but we can drift and stray, can't we? And so Paul, speaking to people who have received Christ, first-generation Christians, and now are being persecuted, some have been killed. And so Paul is reminding them, put on the armor, understand that this is a war. It's a hand-to-hand combat. And you got to wake up every morning, not just kind of whistling and, thank you, Lord, see you in heaven, and forgetting God, but understand by His power, chapter 6, verse 10, you are to stand strong in the power, in the mighty power of God. And you do that by preparing your soul for battle. You have a part to play. You put on these elements we mentioned last week as a good soldier prepared for battle. I had a boy one time at camp, and this was when we were in Indiana pastoring there, and he was our our camp for our first through sixth graders. And uh, there he was. We had fun time or sport time, and he was playing soccer with the rest of the kids. And and we had trouble with this boy all week. But there he was. I noticed as the two teams were playing soccer, he was seated in the middle of the field, just sitting there. And so I whistled, hold up, everybody. And I, went, I thought some, he'd hurt himself. And I went over to see the boy and I said, son, what is, what's wrong? Why aren't you playing? Are you hurt? He says, no. He says, nobody here at this camp likes me. I said, why do you think that? He says, because none of them are passing the ball to me. And I said, so what are you going to do about it? He says, I'm doing it. I'm just sitting here. If they won't pass it to me, they've got to pass it around me. I literally had to have counselors pick him up and drag him off the field. If we were a coach, I would say to players who don't get the ball passed to them very much, I said, now what do you need to do to get somebody? Well, you're going to have to improve in your skills. So when you do get the ball, (laughs) you can do something with it, right? But in a spiritual sense, many times believers are doing just that. I didn't know that the world that the Lord would place me in would be so mean. Nobody likes me or somebody hurt me. And so I guess I'm just going to sit. I'm going to opt out. I'm going to settle for over here because I've been hurt or nobody's passing the ball to me or I've been offended somewhere. So here I listen. Paul is so good to us to tell us. In chapter 6, it's a mean world. Have you been hurt? Raise your hand if you've ever been hurt. Come on. My hand is up with you. We're scarred all over the place. And we're scarred in similar places. And do you think it's going to get better as the days get darker? You think folks are just going to love Christians more and more? I do believe with two college-age sons that they may be well the generation that ends up in jail, as Paul was writing this letter. He says, wake up. It's a mean world, but God loves you. It's a mean world, but faith overcomes the world. It's a mean world, but there's a glorious retirement plan for the believer. Don't quit because somebody crossed you up along and you got crossways. And hey, understand the devil doesn't like you. He is wrestling for your attention. 
He is wrestling for your soul. And so that's why your telephone is laced with these pop-up ads that are always distracting you. That's why the billboards, that's why the world, the cultural system, that's why the political system is is more and more anti-Christ and anti-Christian. I was thinking this morning what a blessing it is to get up and come to a church without without having underground or having guards at the door, without them telling us what parts of the Bible we can or cannot preach. But there's a day coming where they're going to do that. And Paul is saying, and I wonder, if it cost us our lives potentially to come to church this morning, how many people would be here? And Paul is saying, understand something. He's writing from jail. He said, understand something. You have a mean enemy. And this convenient faith that is so prevalent in America has got to go. And it will go as persecution rises, the true believer will be evidenced by his commitment to Christ. And I tell our boys that from time to time. You may well be the generation. It's amazing to me how fast our liberties, the play yesterday reminded us all how fast our liberties, and I'm talking about American liberties, are waning in just my lifetime. Well, that's really the book in a nutshell. And then we get to this wonderful conclusion. I just wanted to share with you a couple truths in principle in the next few minutes that we have together about this principle of prayer. He says this, praying always. And I want to, first of all, just share with you uh, a couple closing thoughts about prayer. Make prayer the constant discipline of your life. You see that in verse 18, praying always with all prayer. I don't know how often you pray or how long you pray or how high you pray, but isn't it true that most of us use prayer as an occasional practice? I'm guilty. Are you? We pray before meals, or we whisper a prayer in the morning, whisper a prayer at noon, or we recite a prayer at night. Lord, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Or others use prayer as a stress reliever, right? You're going into something very stressful, and so you throw up a quick prayer. Lord, help me get through this. It's the crisis prayer. We breathe a sigh of relief there. I gave this whole thing to God, and now it's up to me. Or we push prayer into a box called Wednesday night prayer meeting, thinking that if God hears me once a week, somehow that's enough. I don't know about you, but I don't pray like I should. No wonder the disciples, upon seeing the Lord spend long hours with God the Father in prayer, came to him and asked him occasionally, Lord, Teach us to pray. We are experts in sports, in technology, in politics, and the weather. I mean, we can tell you what kind of weather we're going to have 
next Saturday. And we like to talk about that. But we are less than first graders in our prayer habits, aren't we? We're like babies when it comes to prayer. Prayer is simply that spirit or breath of dependence upon God that is essential all the time. When's the last time you prayed? You say, well, we did that in Sunday school. No. When's the last time you prayed to God and sensed that He was listening to you? This is the age, says Virginia Brazier, of the half-read page, the quick hash, the mad dash, the bright lights, the nerves tight, the plane hop, the brief stop, the lamp tan in a short span, the big shot, tick-tock, the brain strain, the heart pain, the cat naps, till the spring snaps and the fun's done. You can't commune with God in just, you can whisper a prayer. But God, your heavenly Father, and your friend wants to hear from you more than he does. When's the last time you really prayed? Prayer is again nothing more than your continual breath of dependence upon your God. How much do you need Him? Well, the answer is in how much have you prayed lately? How long has it been since you've prayed and stayed in prayer? You see, Paul is not saying here, pray occasionally because you can check it off your list. He's not adding it to the list of things that you would put on as a good soldier. He's saying, no, this is the ongoing breath of the Christian. Prayer. Put on the gospel armor, one hymn writer said. Each piece put on with prayer. Praying always with all prayer, with all perseverance for all saints. Prayer here in the Greek is prosuke. General request, supplication is the asis, specific prayer. So first Paul is telling us, make prayer in all of its forms a matter of your practice. The public prayer, the private prayer, the whisper, and the tear-stained hour that you cry out to God. The silent and the exclamatory, the brief and the long, the worship and the Prayer complaint or distress, we see that in the Psalms. The prayer for yourself, the prayer for others, the prayer when your hands are folded quietly, and the prayer where your hands are raised. It's okay in a Baptist church to raise your hand. The standing prayer and the kneeling prayer. The prayer that's inaudible and the prayer that cries out for mercy. God hears them all, and appreciates them all. So quit not praying. Always pray. Make prayer the constant discipline of your life. Uh, That means in all seasons, uh, that idea of, of, of just consistent prayer at all times and all seasons. Secondly, make prayer both general and specific. Praying for all saints. See it there in verse 18. What does that mean? Do I just say, Lord, bless all the missionaries. Lord, bless all God's people. There, done. 
No, it means as you pray, include the church. Pray generally for all the saints. Why? Because they all struggle like you do. You ever wondered, what should I pray for uh, the church about? What should I pray for pastor about? Well, this is a general command to pray for the church, all saints. Why? Because we all struggle in the same ways. There's no force field around a deacon or pastor. We all struggle. So pray uh, for all of us together. If you're discouraged, pray that the church would be encouraged. Pray for those that struggle like you do with lust and greed. Pray for the church in terms of pride and rebellion, repentance. Pray for those who struggle with favoritism and discrimination. We all do with laziness and disobedience, fear, courage, weakness and weariness. Anybody weary today? Pray for the church, for faithfulness and consistency. How can I pray for you? Well, because I know me. And Paul is saying, pray always for all the saints, because we all hurt similarly. And then he says, pray for me. This is specific. Aren't you glad that this is the Apostle Paul? And he could have done an end around, I suppose, the church. And he could have said, Lord, here's what I need. Instead, now he does do that, but he prays. He asked the people, would you pray for me? Let me ask you a question. When's the last time, think about it, when's the last time you have asked somebody to pray for you? No, no, no. Me and God, we've got this. You see, there's strength in corporate prayer. There's strength in letting people know that you have a need. And Paul knows that. And so he's saying, yes, I've been asking God for for specific courage uh, to speak boldly as I ought to speak, but I want you to help me with this. You know, I think God enjoys hearing the, the, the choir of prayers, the harmony of prayers that comes from God's people saying, Lord, there's a need and there's a lot of voices on the line today. It's coming from the church. Remember Paul, or excuse me, Peter? The whole church is praying for his release. You think God heard that? Yes, he hears one prayer, but he hears the prayer of the church. So Paul is saying, I want you specifically to pray for me about this thing. Humble yourself and go to a friend and say, listen, I'm struggling with A, B, C, and D, and maybe the whole alphabet. And and would you pray for me specifically? And Paul names it. He says, would you pray that I would be bold in my witness? Because I'm chained to two soldiers right now, both of whom could whip me or take my life at their own whim. And, and I really don't want to say much more about the gospel, that there's only one God, and it's not Nero. If I say this, it's going to cost me perhaps my life, or another whipping. Would you pray that I would be bold? What are you praying for? What are you asking others to join you in? And then let me add one more Before we're done, understand that prayer isn't uh, the practice of closing your eyes and shutting out reality. Prayer really is the practice of closing your eyes and opening them spiritually. What does it say? Verse 18, pray always with all prayer supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto. We are to watch in prayer 
The Greek here means to watch with steadfastness. It's a mom watching for her son, praying for his purity in prayer. It's a husband protecting his wife in prayer, naming her specifically, Lord, help her. It's a pastor sheltering his church from defection and heresy by prayer. It's a college student saying, Lord, I don't know who my spouse is supposed to be, but Lord, I leave the choosing to you if you would be kind enough. Lord, to work on my behalf instead of running in circles, screaming and shouting or doing a thousand other things. Lord, would you please watch for me. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Live in the spirit of prayer. Pray without ceasing. Pray that God would help the church and then pray for others specifically and pray for yourself that you would be prepared for the battle that rages around you. He ends this wonderful book, For I am ambassador in bonds. I want to speak the word of Christ boldly as I ought to speak. And then I'm sending Titicus to you, a beloved brother. like to keep him here. He's going to let you know how I'm doing I'm sending him for the purpose that you might know and pray for us more effectively, that he might comfort your hearts. God is still in control. Even though I'm in jail, God is still in control. Peace be to the brethren. Love with faith from God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all men, all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Shall we bow our hearts together? Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.